Hello, and welcome to today's webinar on integrating technology into CDFI small business lending, the real deal. We're pleased that you've joined us today as we delve into some of the key elements that we believe are important to consider as CDFI small business lenders pursue the use of technology to support their work. Um, and thanks to those of you who have persisted with us despite our change in dates for this event. And I'm seeing that folks are still joining. <laughs> so I'm gonna say that once more for those of you who, uh, who it's taking a little while to get in. Um, hello and welcome to today's webinar. We're glad that you're here with us today as we talk about the question of um, how CDFIs are integrating technology into their small business lending. Um, I'm Joyce Klein, um, and shortly my co-discussant Tim Ogden and I will be introducing ourselves. Uh, but first I'm gonna do a bit of background and housekeeping for today's event. Um, so first, as I think may be obvious to you, but in case it's not, um, we are recording today's session. Um, and we are going to be making the recording, the audio, and the transcript available later this week on the BOI website. And we'll share that link a little bit later with you. Um, another a few other things to share. Um, to view uh, closed captions, um, there is a, a, a button on the bottom of your screen. It says CC your live transcript. So you can click on that if you'd like to see them. Um, I think that should get you through that. Um, so, um, making sure the slides go. Here we go. All right. Oh, sorry. Um, my, uh, again, welcome everyone. My guess is that most folks who have joined us today heard about us via our emails. Um, so you know who BOI is, but just in case, um, I'll share a little bit of background. Um, the Business Ownership Initiative at the Aspen Institute works to expand economic, in the opportun uh, economic opportunity in the U.S. through business ownership. And in that work, we work closely with micro and small business practitioners, including very closely with CDFIs. Um, we also work with the institutions that invest in these practitioners. And our work centers on building and sharing knowledge to strengthen practice by those who are working on the ground with small business owners. Um, in the past couple of years, we've placed a special emphasis on practices that have been effective in reaching business owners of color. And we've been doing this work at the Aspen Institute um, for more than 30 years. In that time, we've um, focused on a range of different areas related to micro-lending and micro-enterprise development practice. We've looked at issues of marketing and outreach, products, underwriting, business coaching and TA, organizational elements of scale, and more. And in our work in both our parent program, the Economic Opportunities Program at Aspen and in the Business Ownership Initiative, um, that work has included a focus on the role that technology can play in helping CDFIs and microenterprise organizations to reach more clients with both financing and with business development services. Um, this slide gives you a taste of some of the work that we've done that sort of builds up to our conversation today. Um, so about 15 years ago, uh, Kirsten Moore was the director of the Economic Opportunities Program, and she led a, um, a set of work focused on new pathways to scale for community development finance. That work included a look at how digital and communications technologies could advance scale and sustainability um, in the CDFI industry as a whole. Um, then almost a decade ago, um, the team at the, the Business Ownership Initiative, which at the time was called FIELD at the Aspen Institute, um, partnered with the Opportunity Finance Network as part of the CDFI Fund's 
capacity building initiative on a, a capacity building work um, on the topic of scaling up microfinance. And we, as part of that, we presented a set of trainings and webinars on how CDFI microlenders were using technology. And that work was based on interviews and some case studies on, on with CDFIs that were using technology to, to scale their work. And then about five years ago, um, we published the results of research on how the microenterprise industry was creating and using shared platforms. Um, and finally, at present, um, we're working with three different learning communities and collaboratives, um, our microfinance impact collaborative, our microlending accelerator program, and a, a global learning community that we lead for the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, um, working with their grantees who are working globally on issues of financial inclusion. And all of those learning communities and collaboratives include a focus on how technology and digital tools can strengthen the work of organizations that are serving micro and small businesses. And so our event today um, draws from some of the observations and lessons across that body of work that we've been engaged in for a while. Um, so because today's session is really drawing across sort of a range of work that's been done and has, is being done now with BOI, today you're going to be hearing from two members of our team, our team which is myself and also Tim Ogden. Um, so in terms of our formal, formal titles, um, I'm Senior Director of BOI, and I've been doing this work at the Aspen Institute in various roles um, for most of the 30 years that it's, it's been around at Aspen. Um, Tim is a senior fellow at the Aspen Institute, working with BOI and our also our financial security program at Aspen. Um, his main job, when he's not a senior fellow with us, um, is as the managing director of the Financial Access Initiative, which is a research center based at NYU Wagner. And so we're both researchers in approach, um, but we also want to give you a sense of what we bring to today's conversation. We thought we'd actually do that by introducing each other. <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about Tim. Um, the reason I like working with Tim is that he has a pretty strange or unusual background for someone who's running an academic research center. Um, but that, that strange background aligns really well with our topic today and with BOI's work on technology. So early in his career, Tim spent six or seven years working at Gartner. Many of you have probably heard of Gartner. It's a technology market research company. It advises companies, big and small, on buying and implementing technology. And then Tim spent about 10 years editing and ghostwriting business books that were particularly focused on the intersection of technology and business strategy. And then for some reason, I don't know why, <laughs> um, he started studying topics like global philanthropy and microfinance and poverty. And so for his time at, at, um, at the Financial Access Initiative, Tim has been an observer and a researcher of the global microfinance industry. So he can bring insights and experiences from that work at BOI uh, I'm, I'm sorry, from that work to BOI's work here in the U.S., which is which is super helpful. So I'm going to turn it over to Tim, and he's going to introduce me. Thanks, Joyce. Uh, and I enjoy being described as strange. Um, uh, I feel strange often fitting into some of these various conversations. But uh, Joyce and I first met when uh, I was uh, starting to present some work called the U.S. Financial Diaries that we had done at the Financial Access Initiative tracking uh, the financial lives of households living at or near poverty in the United States. And of course, that was really relevant to Joyce's work. And she came up to me after one of the presentations, and we started having a conversation about the challenges of lending at scale to uh, uh, entrepreneurs of color and communities of color in the United States. And I learned very, very quickly 
that Joyce has uh, a lot of insight on the actual practical challenges. Uh, and so in my world, uh, uh, in, in more academia, I get to talk a lot about theory, about how to deploy capital and uses of capital and capital constraints, uh, and even theory of financial systems. But I don't get to talk a lot about what it actually takes to do the work. And Joyce has been has spent 30 years working with every actor imaginable in that process of doing the work. And so I've learned a tremendous amount from her um, uh, on what it means to be a CDFI in the United States uh, and reaching uh, excluded communities. And it's really broadened my view and helped me understand a lot of things uh, and enriched my work a great deal. And so I'm really proud uh, to be part of the Business Ownership Initiative uh, where there is this real focus on actually uh, uh, getting on the ground and figuring out how do we deliver more capital to uh, excluded communities and, and deal with the, the practical challenges of it. It's not just enough to throw money at the problem. Uh, it's an organizational institutional problem. And I, uh, as I said, I've learned a tremendous amount from Joyce. Looking forward to this conversation today. Um, so a little bit next about our sort of approach and our agenda for today. So in the webinar announcement, we shared some teasers about the focus of today's event. Um, so just a little bit of context about why we wanted to talk about this today and what we want to focus on. I think, you know, the, the COVID pandemic forced CDFIs, um, like businesses, like government institutions, to move to adopt technology quickly in order to figure out how to interact virtually with customers, or in the case of government, with constituents. And in the past couple of years, CDFIs have made a lot of progress in adopting technology. Um, but we've also saw technology first lenders or you know, fintechs make significant strides um, in lending to our markets, particularly in terms of delivering um, loans via the PPP. And I think that experience over the past two years have, has created a lot of focus, a lot of expectations, in some cases, some pressure on CDFIs to do even more to adopt technology, particularly for CDFIs that are doing micro and small business lending. And I think at the same time, as we hear sort of this pressure or these calls for CDFIs to do more with technology, a lot of the narratives around technology use and implementation as it relates to the work of CDFIs are somewhat simplistic. So for example, some of the things we hear in conversations on this topic are things like, well, just CDFIs just aren't very good at this. Or um, technology cuts costs and therefore is the solution to financial inclusion. We also hear technology makes you fast. <laughs> um, and we also hear things like someone should just build a one common core platform for all CDFIs and they, they can just all adopt it and that is gonna solve our technology problems in the CDFI sector. And in reality, the, the story is a lot more complicated, especially for nonprofits and for organizations who are serving or trying to serve the customers that you serve. I think what we've seen is that um, CDFIs can be good at technology, but it is the fact that the nonprofit and the CDFI business model make it hard to be good at technology. Um, I think one of the reasons that I think we think that one of the reasons that fintechs are fast <laughs> is not because they're special in some ways, but because they're new um, and they don't have to deal with the challenge of 
um, putting new technology on top of legacy processes and legacy systems. Um, I think we also seen that while digital tools and technology can absolutely help to increase financial inclusion, it's pretty clear that reaching the most excluded or the most expensive to serve customers doesn't happen with digital solutions or tools alone. You still need people involved in that process. Um, I think we've seen that technology can lower marginal costs, but maybe it increases total costs. <laughs> um, and then the reason that you can't build a single platform that works for all CDFIs is because CDFIs offer different products, use different processes, and have different goals. And that means their technology choices are going to differ. So our goal for today isn't so much to rebut narratives, although we're going to go deeper into some of the narratives I've just raised. But what we wanted to do was to sort of put out and explore concepts we think can be helpful to CDFIs as they think about how to plan for, identify, select, and implement technology. And our goal is to share those with you today through a conversation between Tim and myself. Um, and then get your take um, on how they relate to your own experiences and thinking about um, or working to adopt technology. Um, it would be great to hear from funders or investors who have been trying to support CDFIs in this space. Um, and we'd like to get your feedback and input as we think about what other types of content or information or resources on this subject might be useful in your work. So um, here's how we're going to do this. Um, we know it can get hard to be hard to get really interactive in a webinar format. Um, and we have about 150 folks who've joined us today. Um, but we do want to hear about your questions and experiences. And there are two ways to do that. Um, first, you can use the Q&A button um, on the bottom of the screen to pose questions that we hope um, that you hope will address during the session. Um, you can also use the upvoting feature if you see someone else pose a question that's useful that you want us to, that you're enthusiastic about having us answer, you can upvote that and we'll use that. Um, the other thing is that um, we're also hoping that you will use the chat feature to share your perspectives or experiences on some of the issues that we, that we raise. Um, you can share those directly with Tim and me or you can share them with the whole group. Um, we can make it interactive in that way. Um, and we'd love to hear your perspectives. We think others will value that as well. So, um, so the final thing I just want to share briefly before we get into the content is just to say a thank you to the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. Um, today's webinar is supported as, supported as part of the Global Inclusive Growth Partnership, um, which is a partnership between the Aspen Institute and the Center for Inclusive Growth. So with that we're gonna we're gonna dive in. Um, and our first topic is. Um, we said we dive into this question of policy process or technology, which comes first and why. And Tim, we sort of gave this away uh, because we we put them in this order on, on purpose. Um, but tell us your thoughts on this uh, on this question from your experience. Sure. Um, and you know this harkens back to when I first came into the technology industry. Uh, was at a time of a tremendous amount of change within sort of IT infrastructure. So uh, in the 90s was really the time where everybody was finally deploying PCs to everybody, not just certain people who had certain kinds of jobs, but uh, deploying PCs and then often deploying laptops across organizations. Um, but it was also a time where uh, companies were, were moving towards something called enterprise resource planning, which was a way of integrating their uh, finance, their HR, and their uh, uh, operations and control technology, particularly for the manufacturing industry. 
And so there was a whole lot going on about this question of how do you deploy technology across an organization effectively? And uh, you know, to, to just to start us off, I thought uh, I might add to um, the proper tone of this organization, this conversation, which is really just the conversation of. Uh, for those of you who are my age, you may remember the underpants gnomes from the cartoon South Park, um, who have this plan for world domination that includes three phases, um, uh, collect underpants and profit with a big question of how they were going to get from one to the other. And a common problem since you know the 90s, uh, I'm sure extending even further back, uh, in the in industry as it applies technology is the idea that technology is going to fix the problems. And once we deploy technology, what we get is this output, is that we cut costs, we scale, we improve service, uh, even we become more attractive in raising capital um, without that sort of real hard thinking of the phase two. And that, that comes not from necessarily naivete, but you know, that's the, the, the logic that the industry, the technology industry got very, very good at selling is technology fixes your problems and it makes you more agile and nimble and increases your returns. Um, and as a consequence of that, as I was mentioning, you know, the enterprise resource planning transition is um, when I cut my teeth in, in the industry, there was this thing happening called business process reengineering which was um, as ugly as that slide looks. Um, so I, I throw that slide up there, not to say like, this is a good idea. Like this is the problem with the underpants gnomes approach, which is what it means is that after you've made technology decisions, you suddenly have to go through this huge phase two to re-engineer processes to match the technology that you have. And it's always ugly it's always vastly more expensive than anybody anticipated and ultimately is always suboptimal and gets in the way of achieving any of the goals that people had with technology. So you know, part of the first point here is that um, technology is not a uh, solution to problems. Um, processes are solutions to problems and technology is a tool. If you allow the tool, the technology to drive the process, you can get into enormous amounts of trouble because ultimately what that, that looks like at the top of this slide is you buy technology, technology then drives process because you have to adjust your processes to what the technology is capable of or the process of changing the technology to match your processes is way too expensive and time consuming that it's easier to actually change your process. And process drives policy, if you let it. And policy drives identity. And you get this incredible backwards process that technology, which is supposed to be helping you achieve your mission, changes your mission. Slowly, incrementally, often imperceptibly, but if you let technology drive your process, then your process is going to drive your policy and your policy is gonna drive your identity and you end up being 
not what you wanted to be, not necessarily even solving the problems you set out to solve, but solving entirely different problems as it goes along. And so the real goal here for technology in something like the CDFI industry is starting with identity. Um, and I, you know, I, I think the identity piece is really important, particularly for this sector, because the identity of the technology industry is really, really different from the identity of a lot of organizations uh, who are doing this work. So to, to say that at the most basic level, um, many of the people in the technology industry come at the world with an idea of why would you talk to a human being unless you absolutely have to? Let me interact with the computer. But most of the people in the CDFI industry come to this with a, why would you interact with a computer when you could talk to a person? And that's a fundamental mismatch of identity. Who is it that we want to be? And identity is really important because putting technology in place that doesn't allow you to be who you are is never going to realize the value that you want it to. And thinking through the, the, the challenges of who are we, are we an organization that's trying to reach as many people at low cost as possible is different from we are an organization that's going to find the hardest to serve people, no matter how difficult that is, to make sure that they can participate on an equal footing. And answering those identity questions then leads to policy questions, helps you design process, and then choosing technology based on what is actually going to improve our processes as opposed to what processes do we need to place to get value from our technology is the, the, the basic fundamental starting point. And many organizations struggle with that because of the external pressure of technology is going to fix things or why, you know, questions from funders or board members that are saying, why can't you be more like that FinTech? Um, that, that, you know, reverse this and go technology to identity rather than identity to technology. But Joyce, you've seen a lot of this on the ground in that process play out over the last 30 years. You know, what have you seen in the way that technology drives process in ways that process can drive technology? Yeah, so I think the way that I like think about this in terms of examples of where we've seen like CDFIs think about and, and choose technology is that as like, um, you know, that technology choices should probably vary in part by the products offered by CDFIs and by the scale they're trying to achieve. So that, and I think both, you know, like both your product offering and your scale are choices that are motivated by identity or strategy. So who am I trying to reach? What products do they need? How big do I need to get? Um, where is some level of scale, um, standardization really critical to having me achieve my mission. So just to give some examples. So um, for organizations that are micro lenders and who are trying to do a large volume of micro lenders, a micro lending, um, if you're, for example, making loans that are based largely on cash flow, on credit history, um, and requiring minimal levels of collateral or flexible approaches to collateral because you're really trying to reach deep into folks who don't have high wealth levels. Um, if you're trying to compete against 
um, you know, for-profit lenders, of whom there are a lot in the smaller dollar, small business lending space that offer products online, easy applications, fast turnaround, then you may look at a technology that allows you to pretty quickly sort of upload, pull in bank statements or other information that's going to give you a picture of cash flow, allows you to, you know, um, pretty quickly upload and look through a credit report um, that allows you to do identity verification, fraud checks really quickly, um, populates a streamlined, pretty standardized credit manual that allows you to get to a decision pretty quickly. On the other hand, if you're a CDFI small business lender and you're more doing sort of larger business loans um, to someone who's in a growth mode as a small business, um, you're doing, you know, maybe 50 loans a year, 100, 150 loans a year. Um, your loans are collateralized. They're larger. Maybe they have an SBA guarantee. Then you want like a system that's going to interact with the SBA scoring system, um, that's going to make sure that you're collecting and storing all the, all the you know, um, documents you need to secure that collateral to perfect the guarantee. Um, if you're doing even fewer, like really highly customized deals that are like involve a lot of creativity and underwriting and building a capital stack, you may even want different things out of a, out of a sort of loan origination loan management system. So you may not need an online application if that's the the sweet spot of your lending. So um, so that's a way that even for you know across different types of CDFI small business lenders, you might think differently about what you want from technology. That's really again stemming from product. The other thing I'd say, like on the servicing side from a scale perspective, like we've seen servicing systems that are relatively cheap and that work you know fairly what a lot of CDFIs use that are you know work fairly well for less than a hundred loans or a couple hundred loans. But after that point, you know, if you've got hundreds or thousands of loans in your portfolio, they're sort of simply like too clunky. They require a lot of people to do that like sort of monthly, like posting, pulling, reconciling payments. And at that point, that's when you may want to switch to a technology. Maybe you're outsourcing to someone who does some of your servicing tasks that are pretty routinized, that has better technology than a CDFI can even buy. Um, but again, that that's that's partly a function of identify like of your of identity, like how scalable, how big a scale do we want to reach and, and how important that is that to our mission. Um, so that's sort of how I, I think about like how I've seen that issue sort of play out. Um, but again, thinking if, again first about what's what's the what's the identity and what's the process. So all right. So we talked a bit about the process of sort of selecting or thinking about where technology comes in in that sort of flow of how an organization builds its processes. Um, let's talk a little bit now about a second key concept that we wanted to raise, which is total cost of ownership. So talk to us a little bit about what TCO is and why it matters. So total cost of ownership was something developed by one of my very first mentors, a guy named Bill Kerwin. And I mentioned sort of entering the industry at this time of wide scale personal technology, personal computer deployment. And it, it really was sort of a perfect encapsulation. The, the, the total cost of ownership idea expands well beyond technology, of course, or certainly well beyond uh, PCs, but that's where it originated. At a moment where people were like, oh, Deploying PCs across the organization is a process of uh, counting how many people we have, multiplying that by eight hundred or a thousand dollars for the cost of buying the equipment, and that's our budget. And as this 
uh, simple little graphic shows you that budget is just that tip of the iceberg. And Bill's insight was the process, the total cost of deploying technology has to include a lot more than the cost of buying the technology. And that has continued to be a challenge for many organizations as they think about technology problem uh, uh, projects in terms of the cost of the software, the cost of the hardware, the literal technology cost. Maybe they start integrating service contracts, but even still, that's not what the cost of ownership of technology is. The cost of ownership of technology includes the cost of deploying, the costs of training, the costs of support, the costs of security, the cost of retraining every time there's a change to the application that you're using, the cost of tech support, the cost of all of these other upgrades and service that go along with um, deploying and using technology. And you know, the technology industry is very invested in providing a narrative that focuses people on the, oh, you're on, your, your, your annual license costs are only this big and think of all the benefit and not thinking through or encouraging organizations not to think through the rest of the total cost of deploying and using technology. And uh, that then creates ongoing problems for organizations when they don't budget appropriately. And uh, you, you know, we'll talk some about this uh, a bit later too, is you know, this is a, a problem, not just a lack of sophistication from CDFIs or people in the nonprofit sector. It's a problem coming from the funders that you know, they don't want to see budgets that include maintenance, upgrades, service, training. They just want to see the budget that includes the capital cost. And then expect that, well, that's going to drive down your long-term operating costs because technology always cuts costs, right? And you know that it doesn't always and doesn't take into account all of the other costs. So you know, just to put you know some some real specifics on this, right? You know, thinking through just the cost of deploying Microsoft Office to a group of people who hadn't used it before, just to you know, provide this framework, right? It wasn't just teaching people how to use Word. It was also recognizing that once you taught people how to use Word, not only were they going to use it, they were gonna spend a lot of time changing fonts and changing type size and redesigning their documents. Documents they never would have thought of designing in the era of typewriters, but now every document well, yes, it's much faster to type it on the computer, but it's much slower to do all of the design work that then you do because you can. And you know that's a really simplistic example. But when we think about things like uh, you know uh, underwriting software or loan servicing packages, there's a lot of training that goes into it, often to a lot of people who aren't necessarily all that comfortable with automated processes. And so you do have to do a lot of handholding, but then there's a whole lot of customization that goes along with it. And people do more when they have the technology that then sort of the, the, the work expands to fill the time. Uh, and so you, uh, realizing some of those time savings can be quite difficult. And for organizations heading into thinking about technology deployments, it's really, really critical to think about not just the cost of purchasing, but the rest of the costs that go along with that. And 
when are cost savings and where are cost savings going to be realized and budgeting appropriately and raising funds appropriately to actually get the value of IT because they've accounted for those full costs. Great. Tim, I think the other thing I would just add here is it also, there's a one of the huge costs <laughs> or areas where you may not see the benefits um, if you don't invest in this is the whole sort of change management. Hmm. Like how do you how do you help people ensure that people are using the technology in the way that's most efficient? And that's where again, I think going back to the previous slide where we said sort of identity policy, process, technology is that often what's key is getting people bought into the process um, as well as that you're trying to drive with the technology um, because often if people aren't comfortable with that process, that's where they start not using the technology or doing workarounds or you're not seeing those improvements that you're hoping and, to and see. And that adds tremendously to costs is when you have you know, a lot of the idea of the cost savings of technology is you're replacing this slow manual process with this other process. But if you're just adding another process and some of your work is being done manually because people aren't comfortable with the technology or comfortable with the way the process has changed, now you're running two processes. And that is inevitably dramatically more expensive than the idea of the cost savings from technology. Right. And I think one of the places we've seen this is where we've seen some lenders leveraging a credit model that was developed someone else to do their underwriting mm. and then saying, we don't like the outcome of this underwriting decision, maybe because we're trying to serve customers that fall out of their credit model, but our mission is to serve them. Um, and then they end up sort of double underwriting everything <laughs> because they don't like the way that credit outcome. So the, then the question becomes, did we really select the right a, did we select the right, you know, credit scoring tool or credit model that we're that we're leveraging, um, you know, or do we want to have to force people to not re-underwrite because this is the direction we're going? But that again is an identity question Absolutely. of who do we want to be lending to. Um, and great, you know, another example of that, uh, Joyce, is you know, the you know it's not just two internal systems. Again, for the identity of who the CDFIs are, the customers they serve don't necessarily want to be digital. And I often hear funders talk about, oh, look how cheaply we can do this if we go in a fintech model. And why can't CDFIs or others adopt those models? And you know, the reality is CDFIs are going to have to maintain two customer-facing processes if they want to serve underserved communities. That's not to say that only that people in underserved communities don't want to use technology. Many of them have realized tremendous gains from technology because you know, not having a human interaction, we know actually can benefit a lot of people of color because they don't face human discrimination. Um, but we also know that they have good reason to distrust automation because some of that discrimination gets built into the systems. And so on an ongoing basis, it is implausible that anybody who cares about reaching people in communities of color can go one way or the other. You have to do both. Great, thank you, Tim. Um, I, I'm seeing start folks start to answer questions. We're gonna start getting to those, I'm sorry, start to ask questions. We're gonna get to some of those. Um, so, but please keep queuing them up because we're going to, we're going to get to them in a little while. So thank you for that. 
also, again, feel free to share reflections, reactions in the chat um, to everyone or, um, or just to us. So thank you. Um, okay, the next thing we wanted to talk about a bit, um, and we're gonna, I think we'll come back to this concept of total cost of ownership. Um, but before we do that, um, let's, we also said we would talk about why and um, how scale is important in realizing the benefits of technology. Um, and at the beginning, and we, we started to talk about this issue, like we hear technology is critical to financial inclusion because it drives down the cost of transactions for serving folks who have been excluded, serving folks who are expensive to serve. So it's going to enable you to reach many more folks, reach folks who haven't been reached. Um, but in part because you do have to think about this total cost of ownership, not just the marginal cost of a single transaction, scale in terms of number of transactions is really key to realizing many of the benefits of technology, um, at least from a, the financial perspective of the CDFI. So tell us a little bit about why that's the case. So I put on my old IT consultant uniform here to put me back in the in the frame of mind. Um, and you know, another way of thinking about that question is achieving business value from technology. How do we take a technology investment and turn it into outcomes, outputs, however you want to sort of use your your logic model or your your log frame or your theory of change to you know, we don't just care about the cost of transactions, we care about outcomes. So how do we go from the cost of a technology to an outcome? And uh, you know, the, the, this conversation you know, enabled me to reach far back into my past that achieving business value from technology on the left side, that's the cover of the very first book that I worked on uh, that came out in 2002. Um, it was published by uh, a Gartner consultant who specialized in this. And um, you see on the right, a chart from Gartner that's from last week um, that says, hey, we wrote a book on this 20 years ago and still only 7% of our most technology savvy people are consistently successful in demonstrating the business value of their IT budgets. And so, you know, uh, the reason I throw this up here, Joyce, is just um, I am very sensitive to the wrong-headed idea that people in the nonprofit industry are bad at technology and need to learn lessons from the for-profit sector or learn lessons from the technology industry. Because the fact is nobody is good at this, which should cause us all to sort of reflect back, it's really hard. It's not that it, we're bad at it in the nonprofit sector, it's that it's so hard that 93% of people in the for-profit sector are on the leading edge of technology find it difficult to do this. So why is that so hard? And you know, I, I think it's helpful to have something of a framework for what are the ways that we sort of in this amorphous way talk about IT improving operations or improving business outcomes or delivering value. Because it, there's a lot of different possible ways that it does. Um, and you know, th this framework of economic impact, agency costs, transaction costs, organization and, and behavioral impact, often those just get sort of muddled into a technology saves money. And you can't design and go into this with just sort of that amorphous idea. It does sort of require thinking through where do we expect technology investments to help us save money? You know, one of those places is 
um, agency costs. And agency costs is you know theory, economic theory term for just the costs of monitoring um, the the monitoring processes, uh, external and internal actors. And technology can lower those. Um, agency costs by making it a little bit more transparent to see what's going on. But of course, that requires the investment in people who understand the technology enough that it is transparent and not a black box. And I, I have heard from you plenty of stories of people struggling as you sort of the idea you, you raised before of underwriting algorithms that nobody agrees with the outcomes and nobody really understands how it got there. Um, and, you know, that definitely means you're not realizing business value from your technology deployment. Uh, you know, in other places that it lowers the cost of transactions. It is absolutely true that technology can lower the marginal costs of transactions. And by that means, we mean the cost of each additional transaction. And by transactions here, I don't just mean the exchange of funds. I mean, just any interaction between two people in an organization or a customer and the CDFI any of those transactions can get cheaper. You think of email, right? Email is a lot cheaper and faster for each email than it is to write a letter and mail it. But to get there requires tremendous uh, capital investment, fixed costs to be able to have the infrastructure to make your marginal cost go down. And many of the sort of the, the evangelism around technology just focuses on the low marginal transaction cost and ignores the fixed costs of capital and the policy and process changes that go along with it, that when you add it all up, uh, really complicates the question. Technology at its best is, uh, that value is realized in those lower transaction costs. But to get there, you have to do a lot of transactions, right? Because the fixed costs are there, the fact that you can take a transaction cost from a dollar to a penny only matters if you're doing enough transactions that that 99 cent savings adds up to cover the million dollars that it costs you in capital costs to enable the infrastructure to have transactions that cost a penny. And you know that's the kind of thinking through that starts from identity and policy through process. Are we going to end up with a process here that's enable us to, uh, to get everybody doing, to using the technology, to have enough transactions to cover the costs, the, those total costs of having the infrastructure to do this. And you know, that, that is not an open and shut case. So the last concept I wanna to touch on here, just this last bullet in the lower right-hand corner, is that there is this pervasive idea that IT enables change to happen faster. And sometimes it does. But IT also can radically increase the costs of change. There is this idea of digital concrete that I think many of the people sitting on this call will have encountered, which is once you deploy a technology, it is so hard and so expensive to change it that you can't change your processes. You just have to keep doing. There's a you know an old skit from a, a British uh, comedy show that's way too profane to show. It's even worse than the, the underpants gnomes. Um, but it, it comes to this point of um, yeah, the, there's a, a customer service representative who has a customer coming up to them 
with an obvious error and asks the customer service person to change the problem. And the, the person says, computer says no. And we see that a lot with technology problems is they create such digital concrete that actual change is harder. And you know that making sure that doesn't happen starts with identity and policy, properly designed processes, and then a, an appreciation of total cost of ownership in the first place. So those are really core uh, features and, and of, of ultimately achieving business value uh, and understanding the impact of IT on uh, an organization. Great. So, um, and I just want to point out your, your point, Tim, about like digital concrete and um, how few companies have like realized the business value of IT. I'm just going to take back to this point. Like we get this thing, like fintechs are good at technology. CDFIs are bad at technology. Um, banks have really struggled <laughs> with new technologies and to keep up with fintechs. Um, and it's partly because of the digital concrete issue. Um, not just digital, they've also struggled with um, uh, branches <laughs> and physical concrete, and where, which may not be as necessary in the digital world um, and what that does to their cost structure. But it, it's not just CDFIs that have struggled with this question. Um, and part of it is the digital concrete thing. I think the other part that we wanna talk about gets a little bit to the question of, there's a bit of a market question here when it comes to um, building and selling <laughs> technology and adopting technology in a nonprofit context versus a for-profit context. So um, I'm gonna take us to that um, last question, which is how do like funding practices, but also to some extent, like how do market dynamics around the adoption of technology in the nonprofit sector really affect the ability um, and some of what CDFIs confront in trying to use technology. Um, and this is something you've written about, not just in your work that you've done with us at BOI or you've done on microfinance institutions, but also just generally looking at technology use in the nonprofit sector. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll touch on, on this briefly, and I sort of referenced it is, you know, I am a big believer that uh, systems are as uh, are big drivers of outcomes and the system that we have created in the nonprofit sector around technology drives poor outcomes um, and we've got a, a comment uh, to this um, uh, uh, point from from Brian in the chat who's a um, a CTO at a nonprofit and notes that he's one of a very small group of CTOs in nonprofits and you know, that's absolutely right. Um, CTO, by the way, for people to know, is chief technology officer, is distinct from a chief information officer. Uh, and you very rarely see it in the nonprofit sector. And, and often the distinction is the chief technology officer is the person who's really in charge of thinking through where technology can improve an organization. What are the features of technology evaluating new technology? where chief information officers are just about sort of maintaining the, the IT infrastructure, which is such a huge job that they rarely have time to sort of look over the horizon on where we could get better, which is part of why there are few. But, um, you know, I'm gonna uh, skip over a, a quick slide here and we can sort of return to it if, if we can. But um, 
some of you may be familiar with a, a book from the 90s called Crossing the Chasm. Um, and it introduced this idea of a technology adoption life cycle, that there are organizations and people who love technology, love new stuff, and are willing to adopt just about anything, no matter how painful it is, just to try out the new thing. And then there's this group of people in the middle, the majority, who are willing to adopt it once they understand it and know that there's help out there and that other people have used it and it works. And then you've got a group of type C people who are always sort of trailing behind. And the crossing the chasm idea was, you know, aimed at the technology industry to say, you know, your big challenge is how do you go from your early adopters to that early majority? In the nonprofit sector, um, what we see is that the mix of uh, early adopters, middle adopters, and late adopters is radically different. And so the chasm is in a different spot. It's not in that transition from your early adopters to the majority in the middle. It's from the middle adopters to the late adopters. And the fact that the mix looks like this is primarily a function of what funders are willing to fund. It's not that people in nonprofits aren't that interested in technology. It's that funders typically radically undervalue the cost of technology and particularly the skills of managing and implementing technology. And so nonprofits are starved both of capital budget to invest in technology, but most especially they're starved of budget to hire CIOs and people who understand how to manage, implement, deploy, and, and get value from technology. So right before the pandemic, uh, uh, I, I did this little project and I, I will confess I haven't updated it, so I'm not 100% confident in whether this is still the case. But you know, the, the, that, that system then plays out in all sorts of ways, starving nonprofits of uh, the skills and uh, experience they need. As I took a look at the 20 largest nonprofits in the United States and their board of directors, and I looked for CIOs from for-profit organizations that were known to be uh, great and effective users of technology. And what I found was that only one of the top 20 nonprofits in the United States had a CIO on their board from a leading uh, for-profit company using technology. Um, if people are interested, that was Habitat for Humanity and the CIO of Walmart uh, was on the board. And if you think about an organization that was really good at technology, Walmart is a really good, not at inventing and being cutting edge, but about getting value from technology. And that's a tragedy, right? Te nonprofits, CDFIs, need CIO experience on their boards if they are going to get what uh, they need out of technology. They need people with the experience of really understanding total cost of ownership, of understanding deployment, of avoiding the pitfalls of digital concrete. And um, you know, th that's a two-way street. Funders need to encourage that. They need to encourage CI the funding for CIOs inside of nonprofits. Nonprofits need to be looking for that expertise on their boards. And uh, the for-profit companies need to be thinking about how can we help the world by making sure our best technology people are contributing their expertise to the nonprofit sector.
Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Um, I'm, we're getting a lot of questions, and so I want to transition to those. Um, again, folks, take a look and upvote if there are questions you particularly like and you want to hear the questions for. Tim, you've sort of gotten into this, but one thing I wanted you to, to do is just two pieces of advice. Like, what would you advise CDFIs to do short term if, to, to try to improve on their, <laughs> their ability to deploy and use technology effectively? And what would you um, suggest they do in the long term? Yeah, certainly part of the, this long term is that question of how do you increase your technology management? And I don't mean technology innovation. I mean technology management expertise. How do you bring more of that talent in? And like I said, I think that really starts with uh, recognizing that those skills are different and unique and they have to be part of boards. Uh, second, I think, you know, being honest, and you know, I run a grant-funded research center. I understand the challenge of raising funds and what funders want to hear. Um, and I think as a whole, the sector needs to start being more honest with funders about what technology really costs. And I know how frightening that is to write those grant proposals where you know, like, there's no way they're going to fund as much money as I need. But um, you know, continuing to stick things together with duct tape uh, is not going to work. Continuing to ignore actual costs is not going to work. The more that funders hear collectively, this is what it costs to achieve business value from technology. Don't expect me to deliver on something less than that. Uh, the better off we are all going to be. So those are, are, are two particular things that I would say. Yeah, and just as a note, like from a very practical perspective, like you as an organization hire a CIO or a CTO um, and they're not cheap because they have skills and they're in demand. And that's part of your overhead, which your funders are always telling you, I'm not gonna pay more than 10%. I'm not gonna pay more than 15%. It's not direct program delivery costs. And so they're not gonna want you to comment there. Um, forgetting all the other things that go into your <laughs> TCO matrix on the bottom half of the ice uh, of the iceberg that are also probably many of them going to land in what you look at as an overhead cost. Um, so um, I'm going to transition us to some of the questions. Mm -hmm. We've got some um, great questions here. I know. Well, do you want? Do you have one you want to start with, Tim? So. Uh... Yeah, there was one question that sort of gets us a little bit more into uh, specifics uh, about cloud first or software as a service uh, versus you know what what some might call legacy, where you uh, per, per license uh, package software and deploy it internally. Um, and this is a big issue across of nonprofits and for profits. Um, and you know, coming out of the technology industry, I can tell you. Um, that the technology industry has always been really uh, excited about tech, uh, about cloud and software as a service because it means a permanent revenue stream from them, not because it was necessarily better for the customers. Now, that being said, there are some important advantages is, um, you know, cloud and software as a service does tend to opt to, to minimize uh, cash flow and capital investments, cash flow 
challenges and, and cash, uh, uh, cash flow uh, management because you get to pay less on an ongoing basis. But of course, it is also an example of digital concrete. Once you've adopted software as a service, you are in fact chained to the long-term viability, the long-term priorities of that software vendor, and you can't economize. You, you stop paying them, you can't do your job anymore. Um, and that is a, a real trade-off that I, I think needs to be considered. Um, but I, I'd also relate it to Joyce, to, to our, your, our discussion from the beginning about identity. Um, I worry a lot about software as a service and cloud-based services um, because of that uh, process of changing identity when you turn over control of process to someone who doesn't think the same way that you do. Great. Um, sorry, I'm looking at the questions and trying to Absolutely. decide which one, which one to which one to queue up next. Um, this is sort of, I think, going to take us back to the the identity question. We have someone asking, and I totally get this question. It's one of those questions that's super hard to answer, though. <laughs> which is, can you share some examples of these technologies, like in different groupings? Like, how do we know? Like, it's helpful to start in the right place when trying to think about um, uh, which technologies to be investigating. Mm. Um, I mean, Joyce, you absolutely know as much about this as I do and sort of the rubber meets the road. We have done some work uh, on um, referral platforms and other sort of deployments of technology. But, um, you know, uh, I would uh, start with your expertise on, on what we've seen from some of the CDFIs that you've worked with at, at, at scaling on you know, where they're seeing um, technology possibilities. I know there's been a lot of pressure on uh, CDFIs around uh, customer acquisition platforms, servicing platforms, and underwriting platforms. Yeah. Um, so this is one of those things that's really hard because you really do have to start with like identity <laughs> and policy. And a lot of the CDFIs that we've worked with are micro lenders and they're looking to scale substantially. Um, and so they have a micro lending product that's very like cash flow based, credit based. Um, one of the things I've noted is that, and, and they tend to use different systems. So there are a couple of them. And I will just note, like we've worked with a vendor called Loanwell. Um, that's a couple of our CDFIs and our collaborative work with. Um, I'm also the board chair of EBA fund. Um, we've used them as our vendors. So I want to be, but I want to be careful, like not to endorse particular technologies because it really does depend on particular vendors because it really depends on what you're trying to do. Um, but even though a couple of those, you know, organizations have used that one vendor called Loanwell, across those six, they all have different systems. Um, and part of it's a function of digital concrete. <laughs> part of it's a function of what problem are they trying to solve for in terms of what they're trying to do in terms of their scaling journey um, and what the pain points are um, in their process. One of the things we've seen a number of them do as they've grown. So one, so one thing we've seen is that 
They sometimes will use multiple like sort of loan origination, loan management systems, depending on what product they're using. So they may use one product if they're doing like a community advantage um, lend or an SBA guaranteed loan and a different one if they're doing like a micro lend a loan that's very loan, you know, um, very sort of low doc, fast turnaround um, because they just don't want a lot of documents. They want something that's going to do something really different for them. They want something that has a really good online like loan application uh, potential. Another thing we've seen on the, on the servicing end um, is that folks moving towards outsourcing parts of their servicing um, as they get to a certain level of scale um, because they've been using something like down home, which a lot of CDFIs use and they find at a certain level of scale, it becomes really problematically methodic for them to get the information and sort of get through all they need to do when they're servicing. Um, there aren't a ton of great servicing options out there, um, but sometimes what they do is outsource to a bank um, who may be willing to do it at sort of low cost um, and do certain parts of the servicing process for them. Um, you have to get to a pretty large scale to go to a vendor um, that, that's just a servicer. So um, so those are some examples. But I think the, the other thing I would say is it really does go to um, go back to this question of like, what's what are your challenges from a process perspective as you're trying to get to the identity and the outcomes you want? So um, do I really need like an, a really good online application or do I not need a really good online application? Like, do I need to get to a fast decision because I'm competing against someone else or do I not need to get to a fast decision, do I really need to do something else? So it's a that's that's the other piece where I really hesitate to sort of make recommendations around technologies because it really just depends on like what am I trying to do? What what part of my process do I need to fix? And as I fix it, where does technology support that? And then what are the options out there to look at? Yeah, and Joyce, that makes me think of a, a conversation uh, we had that. Yeah, had a had a big impact on me around you know a person who was um, being pressured to automate more of some of their underwriting decisions and uh, you know participate in some other information flows that uh, you know important to the identity of this CDFI was they considered whether a person uh, had ever not just been convicted but charged with domestic violence. Um, and or had it been delinquent in child support payments that they wanted to know like what is really happening here before they ever uh, uh, and it wasn't possible to get that those questions answered automatically and they were perceived then as really slow dinosaur like um, because that was a core part of their identity and there was no way to automate those sorts of things into particularly into any of the platforms that they were being pressured to adopt so that they could be faster and lower their costs. Um, and so, you know, thinking through those pieces, as you were saying, the process and the identity and being able to really explain where technology uh, improves process or where it's not going to yield savings because of the unique and very important processes that are part of the identity of a particular CDFI. Um, I did see two questions here, Joyce, that are kind of interrelated. Um, the lack of training follow-up and the how do we ever get people to stop using the shadow books in Excel? Um, 
And I do think those things are interrelated and you know, very real challenges. Um, you know, part of the reason for talking about total cost of ownership is this exact problem the person is identifying of the, there's two trainings and there's never anything again, is you know, that is a recipe for not getting value out of your technology deployment. Um, building in the ongoing cost of training and retraining um, and, you know, this relates to that, that software as a service question a bit ago is that, you know, technology companies pay people to change things. And when you go into software as a service or cloud-based, that means that you're, you're uh, with an organization who has a bunch of coders around who wants something to do. And, you know, I am old enough now as someone who grew up in the technology industry, to get incredibly frustrated every time a button moves on my phone. Because I just want to be able to use it. I don't want to have to think about where that button went or whether they're calling it now. But you know, why do buttons change on our phones? Because Apple and Google have people with that have a job to change things around. Um, and so you know, that is a part of the software as a service. And then that for means you have to have lots of ongoing training because the vendor is going to keep moving things around and changing their systems. So, you know, there isn't a, a better answer to that than just that's got to be part of the budget. It's got to be part of the technology deployment process. The training never stops. Yeah. Yeah. If training doesn't stop, I think that does help understand why do those shadow Excel workbooks exist? And it's not just because people are resistant to change. It is because people see that the system is not doing something that they need to do. And if you're not putting in the work to understand why, what it is that the person, and you know, sometimes there's a, an innocent explanation. The system does do it, they just don't understand it because they don't have the training to do it. But often it's because there's something the system can't do that is really important to that person in doing their job. And so if you're not doing ongoing training and interaction and feedback, then you're not gonna find that. And you're never gonna get people off of those shadow Excel worksheets. Right. Um, just a couple things I would add to that. But before I do, I just wanna let folks know we've got, we're gonna, we've got about 10 minutes left. We're gonna keep going through questions. Um, we would love some feedback from you on what additional sort of content information would be useful on this topic. We'll see if we can fill that or figure out someone else who might be able to fill that. You can share that in the chat. Um, you can also share it. There will be a survey when you close out of the webinar. So either of those places, but we really like that feedback because we know this is a huge issue. We want to help people with it. One of the things I other just wanted to you know, note as an observation that gets back to this question of like managing the selection and the deployment and the use of technology is that um, one of the things we've I've learned um, from financial institutions that are trying to get better <laughs> at deploying technology and also from like sort of looking at fintech to some extent and how they're doing this is that there are there are in addition to sort of like buying or developing the tech itself there are two other things that they really focus on doing. One is thinking about like taking a sort of user-focused, customer-centric design thinking approach to product design and to process before they get to technology. So they have a set of folks on their team who really think about who's our customer, how do they behave, what do they need, how do we support them, 
How do we make this process easier for them? And technology can support that process, but it doesn't, it's not the only part of what makes that process better for the customer. So that's one thing that like fintechs, technology companies, and others who are trying to be good about implementing technology really think about. And then the other thing is they spend a lot and they think a lot about change management and what's the role of different, and, and this is a cost to do change management because it takes people's time, but like who's the champion for making sure that like the training happens and we're reinforcing people's behaviors and using the technology and figuring out where people are getting stuck and how to help them get unstuck. And, and how is that person who's like the change management leader in the organization, like communicating with the senior leadership and telling them what they need to do to reinforce that, that using this technology or going, you know, doing this change is actually really important. So there's like a set of practices that relate to this sort of technology management and development, but is it is broader than just like what is the actual tech and what does it do or um, not do. Um, also just want to hear just a couple things really interesting people sharing, just reinforcing that in the chat that that experience of like getting clear on what are the operational processes first, how do we get those right, and then identify how technology augments that has been something that's been useful in their um, practice. And there, um, I mean, there's a, a comment here in the, in the chat, Joyce, about an overall tech strategy. Um, and you know, I, I absolutely agree. Things are better when you have an overall tech strategy. I think much of the challenge for CDFIs in having an overall tech strategy is they don't have the funding certainty to have a long-term tech strategy. Um, and you know, that relates back to not, not being naive users of technology, but the reality of the systems that we live in. Um, a tech strategy would be great if you can do it, but you know, tech strategy is also one of these things that you have to update constantly because the environment changes, the technology tools change. And I think uh, many CDFIs are really daunted by the, if we go through a technology strategy process, how often do we have to update it? And how much is how much resource are we going to have to put into continuing updating our tech strategy given change? Um, and then how will we know if we will actually have the money to implement our tech strategy three years from now because our grants are for three years? Um, so what's the use of a long-term tech strategy given change? And I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to those challenges in a tech strategy. Um, I want to just, um, a couple other questions. Um, <laughs> one question that got an upvote, what unmet technology challenges are most blocking impact and process for organizations like ours? Is this the money funding <laughs> question or is it something else? So, you know, my take on this and Joyce, and I'd be very, very interested in your take on this, um, you know, because certainly from my perspective, a lot of the value from technology comes from scale and 
scaling in this space is hard. And so I'd love to hear your sort of thoughts on, on that piece of things. I, I do think often it comes back to money, but um, if I was to put my finger on the particular thing, it's the talent side of the question. Mm -hmm. And of course, the talent side of the question comes back to, do you have the funding to hire the right kind of people? Um, and, and I, you know, I, I don't want to be the Debbie Downer here, but one of my huge concerns over the next five years is I think the security environment where it comes to technology is going to get much worse. And tech security, IT security people are incredibly expensive. Um, you know, often you'll see that you know, starting salaries for a top-notch security person is gonna be more than an organization is paying their CEO. Um, and that's just because they're super scarce and this is super hard. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that, you know, as an industry, as we deploy more technology around security of that technology, you know, CDFIs handle a lot of really sensitive information. Yeah. Um, and uh, I do worry about the talent side of that. What, you know, what happens when a significant CDFI gets hacked and the, uh, the bad actor gets access to a bunch of entrepreneurs of color's bank accounts? Yeah. That could be disastrous. And what will that do to the overall technology industry? And you know, I hope the industry and the funders of the industry wake up to the, like that's a very realistic scenario in the next five years. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to because <laughs> uh, we have been a little bit of a Debbie Downer today. Um, maybe, but back to the question about like what's my perspective on this. So I do think maybe part of this is about resisting some of the pressure on CDFIs to use technology in a big way, because I do think the technology, that a lot of the benefits or of the technology do come when you scale. And I don't think every CDFI needs to scale. I don't think every CDFI wants to scale. We focus a lot at our work on issues of scale because we're always thinking about how do we get more money to folks who are underserved? We know there's a big capital gap. We're hoping that people with good products and services get in and fill that gap. But I think in any industry, you have some players that get really big and you have some players that aren't that big and fill really important niches that we need to, that we need to fill in this industry, that they, they, they're in a community, they're serving certain kinds of um, business owners who may not be particularly facile with technology or there's a lot of trust building involved that gets really hard to do in a solely digital way. So I think to some extent, like trying to resist the pressure that says you have to use technology and you need to do a lot more with technology and being you know much more focused on like what are we trying to do where does tech how do we how do we deal with the process stuff first <laughs> and get that right I, I do want to emphasize that and then where does technology support that um, and I think a more concerted call to all funders and investors in this space to be really understanding of what it takes to actually allow nonprofits and CDFIs to use technology is really, really important. So, um, so I am noticing we are at 2.15. Um, we didn't get to all the questions and I apologize for that. Um, uh, let me just say, um, Tony, if you could share, Tony and our team share the slides again. Um, if we go to the last, oh, 
I guess like if you can go to the last slide. Um, here's how you can find us, our website, um, our Twitter account. Um, feel free to reach out um, with additional questions, um, additional suggestions. Use, if, the other thing you can do is if we didn't get your question and you want us to get back to you, we're gonna download the chat, we can download the Q&A, but you can use the follow-up survey at the end. If you share your question and your contact information, we can look at that as well and see if we can get back to you with an answer. But with that, I wanna respect folks' times. Thank you so much for joining us. We will have the recording audio transcript up on our website fairly soon. Um, and we'll look through your feedback and, and see what else we might do on this on this subject. So um, thanks so much, everyone. Thank you, Tim, as well, always, a bit of fun. Uh, indeed. Um, and I just wanna sort of encourage people, like we are trying to figure out what's the best way to deliver information like this. And so are definitely interested in any of your feedback on format and other questions. What else can we do uh, to, to help uh, help CDFIs navigate this really complex space? Great. Thanks again, everyone. Take care.